0: Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Last week, talking about homosexuality and living in a culture that embraces that and wants us to embrace that and celebrate that got me doing a little more thinking about how to actually engage people with the gospel. And so that's the topic of this morning. But if there's anything that we can learn from Christ and how he dealt with unbelievers... It's that he took the he connected the truths about himself to the everyday issues of life. For instance, his encounter with the woman at the the adulterous woman at the well. Remember, she shows up to uh, draw some water, and he pops up out of nowhere, and he says, "Um, "Pardon me, ma'am, but would you mind giving me a drink of water?" To which she replies, "How could you possibly?" Being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water. Have you lost your mind? Do you know what century it is? Since Jews and Samaritans typically hated one another. To which he replies, well, that is shocking, I admit. But if you had any idea who I was and who it is who's speaking to you, you would have asked me for living water that satisfies the deepest longings of the soul. Do you see? Seamless transition from thirst and racial tension to the deepest issues of her soul. You see, my point is Jesus Christ knew how to talk to dead people. And by dead, I mean spiritually dead. Real people with real souls who are in real eternal danger, who really need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning, that's my hope, that we're going to learn how to do that just a little bit better, namely how to proclaim the gospel, namely how to talk about the most satisfying and exhilarating reality in the universe, namely how God in his love made a way for sinners to be saved through Jesus Christ. So in other words, what I'm after here this morning is helping you people of Christ community engage unbelievers in evangelistic encounters with ease. That's what I'm after this morning, for you to engage with unbelievers in evangelistic encounters with ease. In other words, I want you to know how to go from zero to gospel in your conversations with unbelievers because we all know that we should evangelize, right? We, we know from 1 Peter 2, verse 9, that part of what it means to be a Christian is that we are heralds, we are proclaimers, we are declarers of the very same message that saved us from eternal woe and despair. And yet I know that just harping on you to evangelize is neither helpful nor productive and i also know that one of the things that hinders us in our gospel proclamation is actually how to begin and initiate conversations with unbelievers and so that's what we're going to learn how to do just a little bit better this morning and yet i don't want to, i don't want you to be fooled here i don't want you to be to misunderstand i'm i'm not a great evangelist i'm not even a, a good one necessarily I don't think very fast on my feet. I'm not very bold or courageous. I don't think I've ever walked away from a gospel conversation going, man, you know what? I think I really nailed that. that. That was incredible. I've never had that experience. I always think of the things I should have said after the conversation. I'm a better evangelist in my mind than I am in real person. I've blown way more opportunities than I've actually taken. So what that means is this morning is just as much for me as it is for you. But I want you to be gripped this morning. That if the Great Commission is going to get done, and it is, then what that's going to require is for you here in this church to risk your lives, to forsake your comfort, and to open your mouths with a life-giving, soul-saving gospel Of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what this is, is a microscopic part of God's plan to reach every tribe and tongue and nation and people with the gospel. And it all begins with you here in this room, on your campuses and in your workplaces and in your dorms and in your neighborhoods, and sometimes even within your own families. You need to feel that this morning. So what I'm after, just like I said last week in talking about homosexuality, what I'm after this morning is that you would have lion-hearted courage and broken-hearted compassion to declare the most devastatingly good news in the universe. And this morning, rather than preach from one text, which is my favorite thing to do, I'm going to give you a method, probably better to call it a strategy, how to be gospel double agents and your spheres of influence with the particular unbelievers that God has placed in your life. I want to help you learn how to do this this morning. But, but let me say one thing before we jump into the, the strategy. I really believe that, that one of the best ways to motivate and inspire evangelism is to talk about something other than evangelism first. First something other than evangelism first. In other words, I believe that to really help you be motivated and inspired to to proclaim the gospel, you need to know how evangelism fits within the sovereign eternal plan of salvation unfolding in history. You need to know how it fits within the plan because as you know, the Bible is a story, a true story, but a story nevertheless. It's a drama unfolding in human history. There is a beginning, There is an eternal ending in paradise. And what that means is that there's this captivating plot unfolding in the middle. In fact, you could think about it like this. In eternity past, you have the Trinity. In eternity future, you have nations worshiping the Trinity, which means what you have unfolding in the middle is this riveting drama of redemption that that explains how those nations even got there. Do you see? And how they got there was, was because God the Father predestined them. How they got there was because God the Son purchased them. How they got there is because God the Spirit produced life in them, something like a resurrection of the soul called being born again. And how they got there was because someone preached to them. Do you see? They were predestined. They were purchased. They were produced. They were preached to. So if the Great Commission is going to get done, and mark my words, it is going to get done. It happens through the bold proclamation of God's people, and by that I mean you. So here's where we're going this morning. If you have notes, here's the roadmap. This morning, I want you to look at two skills. Two skills that you must learn to reach perishing people with the gospel. Two skills that you must learn to reach perishing people with the gospel. Number one, you need to learn how to naturally engage unbelievers in evangelistic encounters, naturally engage them. Number two, you need to learn what the gospel is and how to articulate it to perishing people. That's where we're going. So the first skill that you need to learn to reach perishing people with the gospel, number one, you need to learn how to naturally engage unbelievers in evangelistic encounters. You need to learn how to naturally engage unbelievers in evangelistic encounters. Now, one of the exciting things for me about evangelism is that you need to know that as believers, get this now, we have a tremendous advantage in evangelism. Did you know that? That in evangelistic encounters, we have the advantage, not them, we have the advantage. And the question is, do you know what that is? You see, we are not people backed into a corner who irrationally believe ridiculous things despite the evidence against what we believe. No, we believe what we do because that's the only rational thing to believe. That's the only thing that makes sense to believe. And so in evangelistic encounters, we have the advantage. Do you know what that advantage is? I can think of two. Advantage number one, everybody Already believes in God. That's an advantage to us. Everybody already believes in God. And that's precisely what Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 says. In fact, I want you to turn to Romans 1, 18 through 20. Romans 1, 18 through 20. I want you to see this this thing that Paul says. He gives this this profound insight in, in that God has orchestrated all things in such a way that all people know that God exists. Romans 1, 18 through 20, beginning in verse 18. Paul says, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice God's anger is right now currently being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who are doing what? What does the text says? It says they are suppressing the truth in further unrighteousness. In other words, people are burying and smothering the truth they know to be true under more and more sin. They pretend like they don't know it, but they do. The question is, the truth about what? What are they suppressing? Verse 19, because the thing which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. There it is. What they are suppressing is the truth about God. That's what people are burying and smothering under unrighteousness. And notice what the text says. That which is known about God is evident within them. They know it in their very souls. They cannot deny it. They are convinced. They're already convinced that God exists. But how do they know that? Look what Paul says. For God made it evident to them. How did God do that exactly? How is it that all people know the truth About God. Verse 20. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen from the creation of the world, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. That's how they know, through creation through the things which are made because they all give the silent and undeniable testimony that God is real and he's there and he's eternal and he is powerful. And that witness is so clear and so unmistakable that Paul says that they are without excuse. You see, no one can claim ignorance. There is no such thing as as atheists. God does not believe in them. And so so one thrilling advantage we have in evangelism is that we don't actually have to persuade people that God exists. They already believe that. All people are, are people created in the image of God, living in the universe that he created, and they never stop being that, no matter what they say they believe. That is a tremendous advantage to us. But the second advantage about which I'm primarily thinking is the fact that as those who belong to Christ, get this now, We alone have the only consistent, non-contradictory worldview. As Christians, that's our advantage. We alone have the only consistent, non-contradictory worldview. The question is, what is a worldview? Well, just so you know, just like an armpit, everybody has one. Right? A worldview here's what a worldview is. A worldview is how you interpret and make sense of the world. I guess we have two of them, so they're, but anyway, the analogy doesn't work well, but you get the point here. Everyone has a worldview. A worldview is how you interpret and make sense of the world. But the catch is, only Christians have the only consistent non-contradictory worldview. In other words, how the Bible describes reality is what we actually see in reality. There is an identical correspondence between what the Bible says reality is and what we actually experience in reality. Put it this way, if you believe anything other than biblical Christianity, you are daily faced with internal, irreconcilable contradictions with how you view and you understand the world. Do you see? The world only makes sense if there is an infinite, powerful, sovereign, triune God at the center The world only makes sense if human beings are created in the image of this triune God. The world only makes sense if the deepest problem with human beings is sin and that we have forsaken God as our highest treasure. The world only makes sense if we exist to have our deepest longings, the deepest longings of our souls, supremely satisfied by this God, which is exactly what the gospel is. So you have to understand that that God made us all to be interpreters. See, God made us to make sense out of life. So human beings are always looking to interpret life. That's just what they do. And so get this now. Get this. This is very important. One of the keys to initiating and and having gospel conversations with unbelievers, get this now, is listening for when a person's interpretation of life begins to break down. When it caves in on itself. When it contradicts itself. Because again, any view of life not governed by God's word, it's going to fail at some point. It's going to be inconsistent. It's going to be contradictory. It's going to fail. And your mission as a friend, as an ambassador for Christ, is to listen very carefully for the cracks and breakdowns and inconsistencies in the worldviews of those who don't know Christ. Because here's the thing. The more you get people talking, the more you get people talking about their worldview and what they believe. And the more you get people talking about that the more their inadequacies of their worldview begin to emerge. And when the inadequacies in their worldview begin to emerge, that is your opportunity to pounce with the gospel, which is the only worldview that makes sense. And there are four things. There there are four things that, that you need to listen for in a conversation with unbelievers. There are four things that people use to to construct a worldview, four things that people use to give them meaning and significance and satisfaction, and and here are the four things, four things that make a worldview. Number one, all people, without exception, have an identity. They have an identity. In other words, everybody has something that defines them. Something that they recognize as the overarching meaning and purpose of their lives. Everybody has that. Think of the unbelievers that you know. What is their identity? Number two, all people without exception have a problem. In other words, everybody has something that they blame as the fundamental cause of their unhappiness. That which is keeping them back from reaching their fullest potential. Think of the unbelievers that you know. What do they identify as their problem? Number three, all people have, without exception, have a solution. In other words, all people have a solution that they think will make life work for them, that they think will make life worth living, that they think will give them the happiness that they've always wanted and that that they think they deserve. The question is, think of the unbelievers in your life. What solutions for life's problems are they clinging to? Number four, all people, without exception, have a hope. They have a hope. In other words, everybody has some sort of ideal, some sort of ultimate, perfect reality that, that for which they're waiting, some ultimate Perfect, ideal, utopian kind of life that they would live if they could. In other words, what this is, is their version of the new heavens and the new earth. This is their version of paradise. Everybody has that. Everybody, without exception, has an identity, a problem, a solution, and a hope. You see what this is? This is their worldview, this is their gospel. And whatever a non-Christian has for each one of these things, this is their salvation message. And guess what? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's totally defective. And so what you must do is listen for these four things and listen for specific clues that will help you understand how they interpret the world. And so as you talk with non-Christians, which you should do, and as you hear them articulating their worldview, you need to be listening and asking these kinds of questions, not to them necessarily, but to yourself. For instance, number one, you need to say, okay, what, what do they articulate as their identity? What's this person's identity? In other words, what are they holding on to as the meaning and purpose of their existence? What do they assume the world should be like? what what is it that defines this person what gives them meaning and significance and satisfaction or what they think it does what what kind of person would they like to be who are their heroes who are their messiahs who are their functional saviors do you see you need to ask these kinds of questions do you see what kind of friend this makes you super super intentional a great listener <laughs> And everybody wants to be listened to and everybody wants to talk. This is a huge win. Number two, you need, to ask, you need to ask yourself, what do they articulate as their problem? What do they articulate as their problem? In other words, how do they describe their struggles and battles? Who and what do they blame as the fundamental cause of their unhappiness? Who are their enemies? What do they believe gets in the way of their happiness? What do they feel is their most pressing problem? What do they identify as what's wrong with the world? And how do they think it should be solved? Do you see? Next, you need to ask, what do they identify as a solution? In other words, what do they think will make life better? What do they think will make life worth living? What what do they think will finally satisfy the deepest longings of their souls and give them the, the happiness that they've always wanted and that they think they're entitled to? What is the solution for them? And then number four, what is their hope? What are they banking everything on? What is the ultimate life that they would live if they could? In other words, what is their version of the new heavens and the new earth? Do you ask these kinds of questions? Do you think these kinds of things when you engage unbelievers in conversations? Do you listen for these kinds of things? Because if not, you should and you must. You see, for each one of these things, each, this identity, problem, solution, and hope, do you know what these do? These offer a point of connection with people. A way to connect with people on a real, actual, true basis. And it provides an opportunity for the gospel. You see, for each one of these things that people identify as their identity, problem, solution, and hope, for each one of those things that unbelievers have, there is an authentic biblical counterpart And as you talk with unbelievers and as you hear them talk about their identity and problem and solution and hope, you need to be be listening very carefully because what you're doing in evangelism is getting them to articulate their false gospel so that you can give them the real gospel, the only one that works, the only one that gives true meaning and significance and satisfaction, the only one that satisfies the deepest longings of the soul. Do you see your mission In engaging lost people, your job is to get them to articulate their worldview so that they can see, A, it is inconsistent, B, it's not thought through very well, and C, it is incapable of making sense out of the world. Do you see? We have the advantage. And so the question is, how do you get unbelievers to do that? How do you get them to articulate their worldview? How do, you, how do you get them to start beginning to explain their identity and problem and solution and hope? How do you go from zero to gospel in a conversation with unbelievers? And I'm going to tell you right now. And just so you know, people pay really big money for what I'm about to tell you, and you get it for free. Are you ready? Here's how you get people to talk about their worldview and to spill the beans of what they actually believe so that you can give them the gospel. Here it is. Ready? To get people talking about their worldview, their inconsistent worldview, you have to ask questions. That's it. That's the secret. You have to be a good question asker. You see, to be a great evangelist, you don't have to be a great evangelist. You just need to master the art of listening and asking thought-provoking questions So so what kind of questions? Well, questions about anything. I'm serious. Questions about anything. Their hobbies, their interests, their delights, their passions. You need to ask specific questions. You need to ask intentional questions. Get this. You need to ask them questions that have what I call generative themes. In other words, you need to ask questions that generate emotional responses, For instance, you need to ask people questions about things that make them excited. Like deliberately, you need to think, okay, what are they really interested in? I'm gonna ask them about that thing. Things that make them that they're interested in, things that they're passionate about. You need to ask them things that about things that make them angry, things that make them outraged, things that offend them. You need to ask them questions about things that they love and things that they hate, things about which things that move them emotionally, things about which they care deeply, things that make them agitated, things that make them enthusiastic. Do you see? Here's the reason why. Here's the reason why you need to ask questions that produce emotional responses. Because when people are angry, happy, excited, passionate about something, guess what they begin to reveal? Their world view. You need to ask them. Get them to articulate what moves them and grips them and scares them and angers them and why it moves them and grips them and angers them and scares them. Because when they do that, they are unwittingly yielding to you their worldview. And their worldview is the fundamental way that they understand the universe. And if they do not have a biblical worldview, it is filled with hopeless inconsistencies that don't make sense. And that is your opportunity to pounce and give them the only worldview that does make sense, which is the gospel. So let me show you what I mean. I'm actually going to do a role play here, but I get to play both characters. So in the end, I win. This is really great. This is going to be really, really fun. And no conversation is ever going to go this this clean But you all live in in the real world with people who have various passions and interests and things about which they are uh, angry about. And and so you all know people that complain about politics. You all know people who, who are passionate about social justice issues. You all know people who have despicable family members that drive them crazy, right? And they come to you and, and they say these things, and they come to you with their passions and their interests and their anger and their zeal, and they come to you preaching, and you hear them say these things, and guess what they're doing? Guess what they're doing? Guess what that is? That is seepage from their worldview in those moments. They're giving you a little tiny thread, and your job is to see the thread and begin to pull on that thread until their entire worldview unravels. This is a great opportunity for you. So here's the question. How would you move from the subject of some heated political issue to the gospel? Because most Christians, they stay here on the political issue and they wind up defending some political cause and getting tied up in all sorts of subjective opinions and it never goes anywhere. How, you don't want to stay there. You want to get to the gospel. How would you do that? Or how would you go from some controversial social justice issue to the gospel? Most people want to stay here and debate about the social justice issue. I think that is not worth your ultimate time. Sure, use that as a springboard, as a launch pad, because what you want to get to is the gospel. How would you go from someone talking about their despicable family member who they cannot stand and who they don't want to show up to Thanksgiving dinner? How would you go from that subject to the issue of, the gospel. Most people just want to give nice advice of how to sort of get along or, you know, practical, whatever you need to, that is an opportunity for the gospel. How would you do that? Here's what you do. You play what I call gospel Jenga. (laughs) Gospel Jenga. You, You know, how many of you have played the game Jenga? Okay, it's actually really fun. If you haven't played it, you should totally play it and then it'll make you a better evangelist. So what it is, is that you have this, this uh, uh, tower of, of blocks, rectangle blocks, right? And you know how the game works. You feel for wiggly pieces and you move the piece and you place it on top and you keep building it higher and there's all these holes exposed and it's getting tall and kind of rickety and the person who pulls a block and when the thing falls to the ground, they're the loser. Okay, that's, that's Jenga. Um, in, uh, in gospel Jenga, the tower of blocks is their worldview that's their worldview and with each and, and it's made up of individual ideas right and each question that you ask is like pushing on a block it's like pushing on a block. And, and you get how the analogy works. With each question that you ask, you're just pushing on a block. And, and how Jenga works is that you go for the easy and wiggly pieces first, right? And then the same way with Gospel Jenga, you go with the easiest, broadest, most friendly kind of general questions. But, but as you go, your questions get more specific and more precise. And after a while, more holes become exposed in their worldview until eventually the thing crumbles to the ground as inadequate to deal with your life. Do you see? This is how it works. So here's a conversation. This is loosely based on a conversations that I've had. Uh, let's say you're sitting down with someone, a, a non-Christian, and a uh, coffee shop, whatever, and, and the subject of racist police officers comes up. Okay, that's, that's the subject. They're, they're really mad. There's, a, there's another out-of-context video that comes up of a white p- police officer shooting someone from the black community. This has happened a number of times. The, the videos are out of context. You don't know what happened beforehand. And, and the, the media and social justice warriors, they're kind of doing their thing. They're, they're outraged at the systemic nationwide racism that exists in the police force, which I don't actually believe. And, and whether or not that's true, that's actually not the issue. That's actually beside the point. Your job is not to defend the police force. Your job is to get to the gospel. But you want to use that as an opportunity for the gospel. So let's say they're, they're preaching to you with great passion the nationwide systemic racism of the uh, all-white police force. Here's what you could do. You could say this. You could say, you know, I just want you to know that, that I 100% agree that racism is evil and outrageous. I, I 100% agree with you. And you could say, in fact, in fact, I have very profound, deep theological reasons why racism is, is absolutely evil and outrageous. I totally agree with you. Here's what you could say. But if you don't mind me asking, as a non-Christian, how do you know that racism is evil? Again, I agree with you that it is. But but I, I have a... I have a, a I have a belief system that tells me that it is. What, what do you appeal to to help you know that racism is evil? Like, in other words, what authority do you appeal to that you know that racism is evil and outrageous? Now, do you see what I did there? I took the hot button issue of this video, this controversial video, and, and I brought it all the way up to the issue of authority. I'm asking them to explain, okay, how do you know? What, what, what is what, Upon what are you basing your conviction that, that racism is, is evil and outrageous? You see, they are outraged because there is a perceived injustice, right? There is a perceived injustice, and they're outraged at that. But you see, what they don't understand is that the reason why they're outraged is because we all have within us a sense of right and wrong, right? We all have this internal standard of justice to which we appeal. They don't know that that standard of right and wrong, that that sense of justice, they don't know that that comes from God, but you know that, and so you're gonna operate on that basis. And so maybe they would respond by saying this. They would say, look, racism is just so destructive. It, it not only harms individuals and, 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 and destroys individuals, but also harms entire communities. Heck, it even, it even destroys entire countries. Our country is torn and divided. No one has the right to discriminate another person on the, on the basis of race and gender. Whatever. Maybe they would say something like that. Now, notice they still haven't answered your question. They haven't. They've just, they're just giving the possible effects of racism and they're explaining again why it is wrong, but they still haven't given the reason why they know that it's wrong. So you push the block a little further and you say, right, I totally agree. I totally agree. But I think it's really important. I'm still talking to them. I think it's really important for us to define at the highest possible level, how we know that something is right and wrong. So, again, what is the deepest reason why you know that that racism and things like discrimination are evil and out of the question? What authority do you appeal to 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 make that claim? And maybe they would say, well, look, every person deserves respect, right? Every person deserves respect. I mean, shouldn't we be inclusive and and loving of people no matter what race they are? What right does any race have to oppress another race? see what they said? They're, they're, they're a little closer. They're not quite there, but they're really, really close. They know, they just know that all human beings have inherent worth and dignity, right? They don't know why they do. They just know that they do. But you know why. You know why. And so, and so I think you push the block a little further and you say, absolutely, I totally agree with you every person has inherent worth and dignity, and everyone should be treated with love and respect. But my question is, how do you know that human beings have inherent worth and dignity? How do you know that? Like, like how do we know that life is sacred? Why is it? You could even ask a question like this. Like, like, why is it that we arrest people for raping and killing other people, but we don't arrest lions for killing innocent gazelles? Why don't we do that? What is so sacred about human life? See what you've done? You've taken it out of this video, which you don't know really anything about, and, and, and you're, rather than trying to defend the entire police force, you have lifted this up to truth issues. And notice, I didn't ask them if life was sacred. I assume that it is sacred because they assume that it's sacred. They don't know why they assume that, but, that's, but you do. And so maybe they would say something like this. And, and, and maybe perhaps, let's just say, I'm kind of making this thing up here. Uh, let's say they don't really have an answer to your question. They're, out, they're just kind of repeating themselves. They don't really have an answer. You can interject. And you can say, you know, le- let, me, let me give you the reason why Christians make such a big deal about the value of human life. Let me explain that to you. And, and why things like racism and murder are absolutely evil. You can say the first chapter of the Bible tells us that God created everything. See what you're doing? You're giving them a worldview. The first chapter of of the Bible tells us that God created everything, including people. And later on in that same chapter, it says that all people were created in the image and likeness of God. And what that means to be in God's image and likeness is that we have a unique place in the world who reflect and display the image of God. And I think you should just tip your hand and tell them and and say, here's the thing, that sense of justice that you feel that that standard of right and wrong to which you appeal, that, that sense of outrage that you feel that something has is, is wrong and, and evil and wicked, did you know that the Bible's explanation for that is because you are created in the image and likeness of God? That you feel that way because God feels that way, that his image and likeness is imprinted, embedded into your very spiritual DNA? Do you see what I did there? Do you see what I did? You are giving them the foundational theological reason for why you hold the convictions that you do. You're giving them a worldview. See, without God, no one can do this. Without God, no one has a shred of a basis to make any moral assertion or claim about anything. If God, if there is no God, all we are are floating pieces of protoplasm. Just a bunch of accidents and one giant universal accident. But you put God in the picture and everything changes. All of a sudden, we have a standard. All of a sudden, we have God as the center of gravity for the moral claims that we make. And so now I think you, you push the block a little bit further. And for the sake of time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip a few blocks here. But again, the goal the goal is to get them to articulate their identity, their problem their solution their hope and so i think you should bust out questions like this i love asking this question i've asked this a number of times and and it's a lot of fun to think about but i think you could say you know you know that i'm a christian which means that i think about truth and meaning of life issues all the time and i can tell that you're the kind of person who thinks about those things too And I think you could say, you know, and and I know that you know that there is something wrong with the world. Here's my question for you to think about. let's, let's, Let's change the world together. Let's solve some of the world's problems together, unbeliever. You could say, what do you think is wrong with the world? And how would you go about solving it? What's wrong with the world and how would you fix it? Because they have lots of complaints. Do they have many solutions? Well, not any good ones. So you just ask them a the question. You just open that up to them. And I think they would say something like, um, well, and, and, and think about what I just did there. I'm asking them to articulate their version of the fall of man. I'm asking them to articulate their version of the Messiah. What's wrong with the world and how is it fixed? Do you see what I'm doing? I'm asking them to articulate their worldview. And probably they would say something like, wow, I, I don't know that there's just one problem. I mean, there's, there's lots of problems, but I, I think... Yeah, you know, I'm just making this up. I don't think we really know how to love and care for one another. Um, there's just so much war and racism and hatred and discrimination and, and divorce. And I think people really need to learn how to love. Whatever. You see, you see what they did there? They, it's not very specific, but they've just revealed their version of the new heavens and the new earth. That's, that's what that is. Now, to be fair, it's this fuzzy, kind of utopian, romanticized version vision of the future, but nevertheless, they're on to something, right? It's revealing their worldview. Now, you push the block a little further, and you can say, okay, okay, I'm with you. How would you go about making that happen? What would you do? If you were in charge, what kinds of things would you put in place to make that reality that you just described a reality? How, what would you do? And maybe they would say, well, you know, I think you have to educate kids. You know, you have to teach them from an early age to not discriminate, to not judge one another, but to accept one another. I'm just trying to think what unbelievers would say. They'd probably have something like that. Now, at this point, there's lots of conversation still to be had. There's lots of blocks to push on still. But, but let, me, let me do this. Let me fast forward to what the conversation looks like when you actually get to the gospel, when you, when you actually give them an alternative, and, and I would say the only right worldview. You can say... You know, it's interesting to me that you talk about the perfect society in which there's love and and, and perfection. Because you know what's really interesting? I'm still talking to them. You know what's interesting is that the Bible actually says that there once was a time when the world was just like that. You want that. And at one point in time, that existed in the world. You see, the, the, the Bible tells us that when God created the world, he began the human race with Adam and Eve. Pause here. Notice, I'm giving them a worldview. God created the world with Adam and Eve, the, the, the first people on the planet, a cohesive family unit. And the Bible says that at that time, there was no sin. Think about it. There was no crime, no weeds to pull, no coals, no sicknesses, no funerals, no arguments, no divorce, no child abuse, no, no alcoholism. Adam and Eve woke up every morning perfectly content and satisfied. They, they, they didn't have to get drunk to mask the pain and, and, and the emptiness of their souls. Adam didn't have to flirt with other women or, or, or look at porn because he was completely satisfied in his wife. It, it was wonderful. And yet what made it paradise, what made it better than Hawaii a thousand times over was that they had direct access to God himself. He satisfied the deepest longings of their souls. And you need to tell them, and yet... Paradise didn't last very long because Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God and they unleashed, as it were, the virus of sin in the world. And the Bible says that when that happened, everything changed. These people lost their, the human race lost their direct, satisfying connection with God. God. They couldn't be in his presence anymore. They couldn't enjoy him spiritually, physically like they used to. All of a sudden, there was dysfunction in the family, so much so that the fourth chapter of the Bible tells us that one of their sons murdered the other son, (laughs) That, that there was murder and bloodshed in the first family on the face of the planet. And, and you just tell them, the Bible says that the virus of sin has spread to every single human being and the Bible says that it's in you and it's in me. And the Bible says that that is actually the deepest dilemma of life. And that and the, the Bible says that because of sin, we deserve hell and judgment. Picture, you're at Starbucks saying this. You're on a lunch break and you're saying this to your coworker. The Bible says that because of sin, we deserve hell and judgment. That hell is a real place and people go there. I say that to people. Hell is a real place. People go there. People are there right now. We should be there right now too. Tell them that. Then you can say, but you know what? What's so profound is that in the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis 3, is that God, almost immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, God promises that a redeemer, a deliverer, and a savior would come onto the scene of human history and he would solve the dilemma of sin. He would make all things be the way they ought to be. And and, and as we go through the Old Testament, we see more and more about who this Savior would be. And in the ninth chapter of Isaiah, we find out that this this Savior to come, that he would make all things right, that he would make all things be the way they ought to be, that that he would come and and be the ruler we've always wanted but never had, that he would do justice and righteousness in the land. And And it goes on to say that he himself would be God And then tell them. And then when we get to the New Testament, we find out that who this Redeemer and Savior is, is is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And you could say, "I, I know that sounds crazy. And it is crazy. But I just want you to know that the Bible is clear. That the one who would come and solve the dilemma of sin would be God himself as a literal historical human being. And how he would solve that dilemma would be by sacrificing himself in the place of the very people who deserve to die. And that he rose from the dead, that he conquered the grave, that he rose himself from the dead, proving that he's God. God. And right this minute, he offers to everyone who believes in him a new heart. That's how you change society, my friend. Individual hearts supernaturally transformed. And you could just say, and he offers right now to all who believe in him eternal life which isn't just merely living a long time. It is the perfect society that you and I long for. And I just want you to know, I want you to be there with me. What do you think about that? Now you unloaded on them. If you did that, you absolutely unloaded on them. And there's more conversation to be had. But at the very least, what you did is you gave them the biblical worldview. In four minutes. That took about four minutes, 15 seconds, probably. I timed it myself earlier. So about four minutes, 15 seconds to, to articulate the worldview. There's more conversation to be had. And at the very least, it gives you an opportunity for follow-up. So that's one example of how to do gospel Jenga. And you could do this with any subject. World of Warcraft, um, baseball, Uh, You could do it with Donald Trump. You could do it with the book they're reading, with music that they enjoy, their love for travel. You could do it with anything. You just ask intentional questions and you just pull on the thread. You push on blocks and you keep probing further and further and deeper and deeper until their worldview begins to emerge. And when you see the cracks in their worldview, you're going to have to be bold. You're going to have to step out on a limb. You're going to have to risk yourself a little bit, but you need to give them the only worldview that works. Now, an exhortation and an application before I move on to part two. Here's an exhortation. Uh, I want you, Christ community, to do evangelism. I pray for you to do evangelism. You see, there, there are many empty seats in this auditorium, and I'm okay with that in a sense, what I mean is I'm not willing to do some dog and pony show, some kind of fancy, you know, kind of fun thing just to get people in the seats. I'm, I'm not interested in that at all. I, and, and, and we want these seats to be filled, not just with transfer growth, not just with people from other churches. Sure, that'd be great too. But I want these seats to be filled with strangers who, who recently get saved through the proclamation of the gospel through you. It has got to be you. And so I want you to leave this morning viewing the lost world with different eyes. as Real people with real souls who will really be eternally miserable or really eternally joyful and it all depends on what they do with Jesus Christ. This is our mission. Now an application. I want everyone to get out their phones. Not put them away. I want you to get them out right now. Get out your phones. I'm dead serious. And as I'm talking to you, I want you to text a lost person that you know right now. As I'm talking, I want you to text a lost person that you know. And I want you to invite them to lunch or coffee sometime this month. And I want you to pay for it. It's on your dime. This is your treat here. I want you to give them zero excuses to say no to you and I want you to text this person. I want you to invite them to lunch or coffee and I want you to do this with them. I want you to ask them about what they love and hate and why they love and why they hate it and I want you to engage them with the gospel. I'm dead serious. It's got to be done this way. If you're looking for some tent revival thing, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. It's got to be individuals loving and reaching individuals with the gospel. That brings us to the second skill. The second skill that you must learn to reach perishing people with the gospel. Number two, you must learn what the gospel is and how to articulate it. You must learn what the gospel is and how to articulate it to perishing people because I'll just be totally honest with you in no insulting way and and with not a shred of feeling of superiority, I find that most Christians couldn't do this very well. And you have to understand that since the God-ordained weapon, the, the instrument that God uses to rescue people from eternal woe and despair is the gospel, you need to learn how to articulate it to perishing people. Because in an evangelistic encounter, the, what God uses to awaken people from the dead is not your cleverness, It's not your winsomeness, it's not your niceness, it's not your eloquence, it's not your experience, it's not your expertise. No, the instrument that God uses to awaken people from the dead is the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ, period. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, why? Why? because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from what? From hearing, not just seeing a nice person, but from hearing, hearing what? Hearing the word of Christ. This is 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25. You have been born again. How? Not from perishable seed, but from imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. And this is the word which was preached to you. Do you see? So I have four indispensable points of the gospel that you need to proclaim. If you say anything in a gospel conversation, let it be these things, indispensable truth. Number one, you need to tell them about God and the meaning of life. You need to tell them about God and the meaning of life. You see, most people want to begin the gospel or their attempt to share the gospel with man with man's need of salvation, or man's supposed worth, or, or you know, the, the, the forgiveness, or grace, or even the death of Christ. And I just want you to know the gospel always begins with God, not man. It begins with God. You see, people need to hear that God is the infinite, eternal, uncaused uncreated king who caused everything to come into existence including people and you give them verses you just you just portray for them what the bible says revelation 4 larry prayed this during our prayer time earlier worthy are you our lord and our god why to receive glory and honor and power why because you created all things and because of your will they existed and they were created People need to hear the stunning implication that being created by God makes them accountable to God. And you need to tell them what the meaning of life is. And God makes it clear what the meaning of life is. Isaiah 43, 7 says that the meaning of life is that we were created for the glory of God. Tell them that. The meaning of life is that we exist for the glory of God. Meaning what? Meaning that we exist to be enthralled and exhilarated and captivated and satisfied in God as the highest treasure in the universe. That is the meaning of life. Everyone's looking for it. You know what it is. It is the glory of God. Which brings us to the second indispensable truth. You need to tell them about sin and its consequences. You need to tell them about sin and its consequences. You see, you need to tell them that the deepest problem with all human beings is that they are born with a spiritual cancer in their soul called sin. You need to tell them, and just be honest with them, that all people are born wicked, hell-deserving sinners. You give them Romans 3.23, which you know well, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hear that word glory? It connects with the chapter, that, that verse in Isaiah. And what that means is, is as sinners, we fail to glorify God like we were created to. They were created for the glory of God and sin is doing the exact opposite and they probably know about sin. They might even believe that they commit sins but probably what they fail to understand is the essence of what sin is and what sin is is taking something that's not God and loving it and worshiping it and trying to be satisfied in it as if it were God. That's treason against the creator. You see, People need to understand that sin is treating God as if he were worthless. Sin is an infinitely evil crime against an infinitely worthy God which deserves an infinite punishment. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Wages are what you deserve. Wages are what you earn. Wages are a paycheck. This is what you deserve. And what you deserve because of sin is death. And that's just not physical death. That is spiritual and eternal death. You need to use the word hell. You need to tell them that without Christ, our souls hang by a slender thread over the gaping jaws of eternal hell. They need to know that hell is a real place. And that people go there. And they need to know that God will never drop the charges of sin. He's never going to sweep it under the rug and pretend like it didn't exist. No, they need to know that in the courtroom of the Almighty, because of their sin, they are guilty. Which brings us to the third indispensable truth, number three. You need to tell them about Christ and salvation. You need to tell them about Christ and salvation. You see, although perishing people need to hear the infinite weight of the avalanche of the wrath of God against them, they need to know that there is a way that they don't have to bear that punishment. You need to tell them that God in his love made a way for the infinite, endless punishment that they deserve may be placed upon another. They need to know that God made a way to find sinners not guilty without dropping the charges. What does that mean? It means that God must punish sin. He'll never drop the charges, but he made a way where sinners don't have to bear that punishment. And how he did that was providing a substitute to stand in the place of hell, deserving sinners, and then by executing his white, hot, furious, righteous wrath on that substitute. And by that, we mean Jesus Christ. We need to tell them that Jesus Christ is God that God himself bore the wrath of God upon himself in the place of hell-deserving sinners like you and me. Romans 5, 6-8, you know it well. For even while we were weak, even at the appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love us toward us in this, that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then you just say, do you know what that little word for means? It means instead of. It means in the place of. It means on behalf of. It was a substitutionary death. Tell them that Christ on the cross is being treated as sinners deserve. Tell them that Christ in that moment was essentially saying, I'll take the blame, Father. I'll take the blame, Father. You treat me as their sins deserve. Father, I want you to punish me as if I were the one who committed all those sins. 1 Peter 3.18, because Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous in order that he should bring us to God. And, and that right there, we're almost done. That right there is something that most Christians absolutely miss, the purpose of the death of Christ, which 1 Peter 3.18 just talked about. You see, most people think that Christ died merely to get people's sins forgiven. That's true, but that's, there's more to it than that. Christ did not die just to help people escape from hell. Christ did not die even just to get people to heaven. No, Christ died to bring people to God. Because if you love the cross, then surely you must love what it was designed to do, namely get your sins out of the way and bring you home to God. And you tell them that Christ not only died, but he rose triumphantly from the dead, that he has the cure for death, that he is the cure for death. And the reason why the resurrection is a big deal is because he is the reigning king to whom they must give an account. Indispensable truth number four. Give them the terms and the response. Give them the terms and the response of the gospel. You see, what perishing people need to know, get this now, they need to know that there is a way to get what Jesus paid for. There is a way to have everything that he purchased transferred to their bankrupt spiritual bank account. And they need to know they cannot earn it. They do not deserve it. They cannot negotiate with God to get it. No, the treasure of salvation is accessible only by faith. By faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone and faith is not a work with which they barter with god for salvation no tell them faith is thirst thirst that recognizes its infinite need for what is infinitely satisfying and you tell them there is no playing games with king jesus here are the terms here are the terms christ will either be their highest treasure or he will be their enemy He will be their highest loyalty or he will be their judge. They either give up all or they lose everything. Those are the terms. And there's no middle ground. And you just tell them, look, the demands of Christ are hard. But Christ doesn't say no to joy and satisfaction. He only says no to the things that get in the way of true joy and satisfaction which are found only in Him. And so you just ask them, are you ready to lay down the weapons of rebellion and to wave the white flag of surrender and to yield yourself to the satisfying custody of Jesus Christ? You see, that is, is the gospel that is what we're offering. I close with this. Those are two skills that you've got to learn to reach perishing people. You've got to learn these skills and the fact of the matter is those whom God has chosen Those for whom Christ has died from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, mark my words, they will get saved, but they will get saved through and only through the proclamation of the gospel through people like you. Christ community, you need to know you have the opportunity of a lifetime at your fingertips to advance the great commission. And it's through the declaration of the most shareable, unembarrassing message in the world. You believe, I hope, that there was nothing to lose and everything to gain in giving your own life to Christ. And I hope that you see that there is nothing to lose and everything to gain in telling unbelievers that they have nothing to lose and everything to gain in yielding their life to Christ. I want us to be a church of beautiful feet. Let me read Romans 10 and then I pray. How shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without someone preaching? And how shall they preach unless they are sent, even as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things? So therefore, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word. Of Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so grateful to be included in Christ to be saved by him, to be found in him, to possess every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that is located only in him, O Lord. And and what we really need help with is, is to be declarers of that, to be declarers, sharers, proclaimers, heralds, ambassadors of who Christ is and what he accomplished, O Lord. You promise that there will be suffering, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, that we are sheep in the midst of wolves. Compel us. Make us eager. Help us to see. Help us to see, oh Lord, the sleepy culture in which we live. Pretenders everywhere. Counterfeit Christians everywhere. Oh Lord, let us be like light piercing the darkness in our homes and in our neighborhoods. Let us be bold in our proclamation. Bold, winsome, loving, gracious. All those things, Lord. Please work in this people and make them evangelists in this area, Lord. We literally have, oh Lord, the, the, uh, a great harvest, a great orchard, oh Lord, from which we may glean, make us great gospel farmers, great gospel agriculturalists in this community, oh Lord, I pray, I plead, I ask, and we look forward to how you will use even this one small tiny Sunday in the scheme of eternity. In Christ's name we pray, amen.